God, I'm so thankful for my church family. I'm thankful that you have shown yourself to be faithful, and I pray that we do the same to you. As we give to you, I pray that it's just an overflowing of the blessings that you've given to us, that we're able to make it so obvious and so clear how trusting we are that you take care of us, that you meet our needs, and that you give us blessings so we can bless others. Be with our services this week. Allow us to uh, really be wonderful examples for you in our community, um, especially in this time of distance. We want to be so intentional and purposeful of being a wonderful reflection of who you are to the people around us. We love you so much. This is on Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Alrighty, Pastor David. Hey, good morning. Uh, as Jeremy already expressed, it is a great joy to be with you guys this morning, uh, even over this digital space. Um, I, I want to call your attention to something really exciting coming up. Obviously, you've already seen the deacons. Uh, an unprecedented number of deacons were uh, were nominated and were brought into um, the, the the new board that we have. Um, and we just we had such a fantastic time interviewing those people, going through their applications, like Jeremy already told you. But I, I just can't reiterate how awesome it was to actually get to communicate with those people because they have such a heart for service and a love for our church. And it just comes across as you have a conversation with them about their own spiritual walk and how they want to serve Cornerstone moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, there are some really cool opportunities that I, I can't fully share because pastor's not here to give me the wink to say yes on that. Um, but there's some really exciting opportunities that we have coming up. Um, in the next week, I need you to be in prayer for uh, some, some meetings that are going to happen between our staff and some other staffs. Um, uh, in Florida, actually, um, around some some reemphasizing re our discipleship process um, and 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 seeing how other churches are doing it as we kind of talk to some leaders, um, really in the discipleship world, uh, not not just leaders in their own church necessarily, but leaders in the discipleship conversation globally as well as in their own place. And so, be in prayer for some opportunities that might be coming up. Who knows what God could have in store because of relationships that we are making. So. Just be in prayer for that, please, that God's favor would be all over those conversations and meetings together. Um, we are in our fifth week now, fifth, five, it's, I don't know what day it is anymore. Fifth week, I think, <laughs> of our uh, <laughs> our uh, parable well, series. Yeah, 107th week of our parable series here uh, with the short stories of Jesus. Um, I, I want you to remember a couple of things. The, there's a purpose behind the short stories, the parables of Jesus. Whenever he delivers them, they're for the purpose of um, examining more about the kingdom of God or explaining more about the kingdom of God. Every parable is subject to something about the kingdom. Um, and, and, and it's calling us towards something, either to think differently or to change our attitudes or to examine who God is and, and how he works through us in the world. Whatever it is, the short stories of Jesus are trying to move us towards something. And today's short story actually does all three. Uh, it, it wants to change our attitudes, change the way that we think, and change the way that we view God and the way that we act in the world. So let me give you the setting before we jump right into the parable. In Luke chapter 14, we're going to be in Luke 15 today, but in Luke chapter 14, which kind of sets up what's about to be happening, here's the problem when you read one chapter at a time, one verse at a time in the Bible. Not that that's the worst thing ever. You're going to find some truth and some wonderful things in verses and in chapters, but I'm just saying when I remove stories from one another and I read a chapter at a time, I may miss the context of what's happening. In Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus starts to tell us a bunch of stories, but unless I understand the context, the impact of those stories or the understanding of those stories 
may be lost on me because I'm missing the overall context. So we've got to back up to Luke chapter 14. Jesus is eating in the home of a ruling class Pharisee. So this is like the, the religious establishment. These are really important characters. And Jesus had just exposed their judgy attitudes <laughs> towards the others in the room and the Pharisees in the room because Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were judging him for that. They, they believed that that was incorrect and that was wrong. And so then Jesus goes on to tell a couple of stories where the VIPs in the story were humbled and the common folks in the story were accepted and given prominence. And as a result of that teaching, the beginning of chapter 15 in Luke says this, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's the setting right before we jump into the parables that we're about to look at, the short stories of Jesus that we're about to look at. Imagine being in a uh, small area with a lot of people listening to you on bated breath, and there's a very mixed crowd in the room. There are uh, prominent people within the community, wealthy people within the community who hold a religious um a high position, and then there are people whom they are calling out <laughs> in their midst that they're sinners and that they should not be ones that Jesus welcomes in. Jesus then gives you a verbal tongue lashing via some stories, and now everybody's set in a nice moment to hear some more stories that Jesus is about to give. So Jesus tells another parable. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Maybe you've heard of it before. I'll read it here now. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. What, uh, what man among you? who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, again, this remember the crowd that's listening. Remember the ears that are in the crowd and how they're hearing what he's saying. It's really important. Now, the point of this story is the certainty of someone searching and the celebration at finding. I mean, the teaching is pretty straightforward. Uh, if a shepherd will lose uh, one of his sheep, there's a lost sheep, he's going to go and find it. Uh, and he's going to do his best to find that lost sheep. And when he finds that lost sheep, he's going to rejoice about it. Jesus is using this as an example to talk about how much more God, how much more will God search for a lost person and rejoice when he recovers that person. I mean, he's, it's pretty clear what, what Jesus is trying to do here. And if it's not yet, I'll, I'll give you some insight. Jesus is telling the story in defense of his intentional befriending of people that are known to be sinners. Uh, and not just sinners, but the tax collectors who were <laughs> maybe worse than sinners to the to the Pharisees because they were betraying their people as well as doing things that were wrong on their side. So by receiving these people, Jesus has demonstrated that grace and forgiveness are available to all. And that doesn't line up with the Pharisees' viewpoint of how God operates. Not only has Jesus modeled the character of God by the way that he lives, the things that he says, Jesus has also shown that their complaining attitudes, the Pharisees' attitudes and their judgment on the people around them, do not match the attitude of God. And he's using this parable 
to clue them into how you should think differently and how you should act differently because this is how God acts and these are his attitude attitudes. The story teaches us that God places a high value on those that are least deserving and not only those who are objectively uh, in a low status, but also those that we might deem as a low status, people who might, who might, we think don't deserve to know or to be a part of this community. God takes the initiative in this story to bring people in, to bring them into a relationship with him, to bring them into the family that he's a part of. He seeks the lost and undeserving. And I think that's just a wonderful idea. And it's a wonderful picture of the character of God that he's not cold and calculating, but rather he loves us dearly. And when our sin made a relationship with God impossible, what we see through Christ is that he's reconciling us back to himself, making an impossible relationship possible once again. See, our sin violates God's commands in the terms of a relationship that we were supposed to be having with him because he made us have a relationship with him to bear his image to the world, to be like him and to do for him wherever we go. But because we've sinned, because we've gone against his commands, because we've violated the terms of his relationship with him, now we're separated from God and we, can, we can't get to him on our own merit or on our own strivings, on our own works is how the Bible would describe it, our works. But what Jesus has done for us is that he has made an impossible relationship possible once again. And the way that he's done it is because God initiates this. God sends Jesus to us to become a sacrifice for us on the cross where he can forgive our sins for those who would believe and place their faith and trust in him. So let me ask you a couple of assessment questions just off of this first parable. Do you assume God to be more harsh than he actually is? It's a thoughtful, thought-provoking question. I mean, think about that for a moment. Because our assumptions and our knee-jerk reactions tell us a lot about where our minds are and a lot about where our hearts are. I mean, do you find yourself being more afraid of God or what he'll do when you mess up? Or is he approachable still? Is he like a gentle father who, yes, recognizes your sin, doesn't want you to do it anymore, but still brings you back in? Based upon the parable that we just read of the lost sheep, the one that the shepherd goes and finds and brings back and throws a party for, based on this part, uh, parable, this short story, was your assumption about God correct or incorrect? Is God harsh? Is he cold and calculating? Or is he something different, approachable? and loving. Let me ask you another question. Do you perceive God to be more comfortable in the company of rule keepers or rule breakers? And we just assume that Christianity is all about rules and it's about following the rules. Uh, I, I know that's often um, one, of the, one of the things that's thrown out against Christians um, is that they're just a bunch of rule keepers or whatever. But is that what Jesus is displaying for us? Based on this parable, is your perception correct? Is Jesus more comfortable with rule keepers or rule breakers? What does that perception that we have about God say about how we live right now and how we act towards unbelievers? 
and towards those who might be far from God. Jesus then tells another story, similar story, the parable of the lost coins. Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now, again, similar story. The parable teaches that we should be searching for the lost. But it doesn't necessarily tell us how we should do it. I imagine that you're not going to go into your house today, sweep up some of the crumbs and the dog fur on the floor or whatever, and find a lost person hiding underneath that. It's not going to happen, and that's not the point of the story. We shouldn't over-literalize it. That's not what this is about. It's a story meant to invoke some thoughts in our minds. So how are we supposed to do it? I think oftentimes, because we have the baggage of our religious experience, especially if you grew up in the church, what you think and what I think, I'm not just accusing you, I think as well, what it means to go and seek to save the lost is to go on a mission trip once a year. It's to uh, knock on doors and kind of do like a cold call. I've never met this person. I'm just going to now share the gospel with them. It means confrontational questions. Uh, if you died today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? It's very confrontational. It is. And that's those kind of three things right there are the three things that I think about. And while none of those are necessarily wrong or bad in and of themselves, what happened is they became the only means by which the gospel went forward, as opposed to building a relationship with somebody. And based upon the relational strength that we now have back one and forth to one another, uh, now I can share the gospel with you because you trust me and I'm, I'm a person that you respect and I can actually talk back and forth and have a dialogue with. And I think what happened is, especially for religious people, is we believe that this is the way that the gospel moves forward as opposed to the way that Jesus did it. What Jesus modeled for us, what his actions were, is going to eat with the sinners and the tax collectors. He went and had compassion on people. He extended grace. He was kind to the people that the religious establishment deemed unworthy of kindness. He saw them as individuals, and he just was with them. He was in their presence. And just because the Bible doesn't record it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't talk to people besides his disciples and those in the room that were arguing with him. Certainly, he talked to people and had great conversations with people and got to know who they were. Simply put, Jesus was a friend. And he was a friend to sinners. But Christians, I think, often worry about what will that association mean? If I become a friend to sinners, will that give me a bad reputation? Uh, will they become a bad influence on me um, or on my family or whatever? Or if I accept them, will they change fast enough for me to be able to handle all that they're going through? Or does my acceptance of them as a person mean that I accept everything about them and I agree with everything about them? I think these are the questions that plague our minds, yet these don't seem to be the questions that plagued Jesus's minds because when he was with the, in the company of the rule breakers, he seemed to be much more comfortable than when he was in the company of the rule keepers. In fact, the only people that he seems to yell at uh, besides Zacchaeus to get down from the tree, are the religious people, are the people who are the rule keepers. Because even though they know the rules, they're not following them the way that you're supposed to with the motivation 
of love and a desire to be genuine and compassionate to people. These parables teach us that whatever we do, as disciples of Christ, as followers of him, we must do it with the same grace and the same acceptance that Jesus did. And I think that we learn a great truth within this, that grace makes space. Grace makes space. Grace creates and affords people the opportunity to be themselves before we cram a message down their throats. Because God did the same thing for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. So we want to point at other people and we're far less quick to point at ourselves and the fact that grace makes space for us. Grace is unmerited favor. It is God's gift to those who don't deserve it because what we deserve is punishment. We deserve judgment because God is righteous and holy and we are not. And yet he offers us grace and compassion and love even when we don't deserve it. Grace creates space for us to come to know Jesus as our Lord. And, and just as he does that for us, as he brings us into his kingdom, offers us a place at his table, a part of his celebration in his very family, so likewise, grace must compel us to make space in our lives for people who think that they don't belong or people that maybe in the past I've thought don't belong. Grace has to make space because that's exactly what Jesus has done for you and I. Now listen to the final parable. Now remember, before I read this, remember the setting. Remember where we are. Remember who Jesus is talking to. Think back to the two parables and what they're talking about. Now, the lost sheep and the, and the lost coin. Now let's look at the final parable, Luke chapter 15. We're going to read a little bit, so keep up with me here. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. <gasps> Everybody in the room would have gasped because these are good Jewish people who don't deal with pigs. That's not kosher. That's not their food laws. Verse 16. Yet he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's higher workers have more than enough food and I'm out here dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, he's about to give his rehearsed speech here. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants. The father's not even talking to his son right now. He's like not even I'm ignoring everything that you're saying right now. I'm going to talk to the servants. He yells to them, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard the music 
and the dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he said to him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he, the older brother, became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when his son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And you probably know that story, the, the prodigal son. It's titled probably in your, in your Bible if you're reading along. Again, let's, let's remember the, the context and the setting. Jesus is talking to a mixed group. There's a group of sinners in the room. And there's a group of self-righteous religious people questioning Jesus' life, actions, and choices. Jesus identifies them both in the story. One, the prodigal son, one who is far from God or the father in the story, or the other son, the older son, the self-righteous rule followers who know God but are better than everybody else. Remember again the context. The past two stories weren't necessarily about the coin or the lost sheep. I understand that your Bible probably gives a heading that says that's what it's about. But as you read the story, and as you read these three stories together, is this actually what Jesus is trying to communicate? A story about a coin, a story about a lost sheep, and a story about a prodigal son? Or is this story about something else? I would say that this story is about God. This story is about the persons in, in each story who went out to find the ones that were lost. This story is about how God goes, how God initiates, and how God saves us. This story also serves to highlight a couple of attitudes that are present within the stories. Celebration or contempt? Let me ask you this question. Which one aligns more with God's kingdom? Because again, the parables are about the kingdom and how it operates, calling us to think or to act or to think about God differently, to know him differently. You, you tell me, well, you can't tell me, but you know what I'm saying. You can comment if you want. Celebration or contempt, which one more fits with the heart of the kingdom of God? I hope you would say celebration. Because that's exactly what Jesus is trying to show us. Instead of focusing and pinpointing on the things that are wrong with the prodigal son or the things that could go wrong because the coin or the sheep is lost. Instead, what the story is all about is how God goes and seeks and saves the lost. Those that the Pharisees said were not deserving of being in Jesus's company in the first place. And yet Jesus is here telling the Pharisees and those in the room who were deemed sinners by their culture and context, you are welcome and God loves you. He will go and get you. And that is exactly what Jesus modeled and did for them. So I have a question, another one. Who are you supposed to be like in this story? If the story is not about God, 
again, I could just read this out of context and I could make anything I want up about the story. Um, and maybe some of the things I make up are really biblical, but is that really the point of the story? So let's, let's try to get to the point and let's make sure that I'm saying the right thing here. Who am I supposed to be like in the story? The prodigal son? Well, of course not. He wanted his father dead. Culturally, that's what he told his father. I want your assets. I want to go ahead and receive your will, even though you're still living. That's, I want you dead. Okay. We're not supposed to be like the prodigal son who goes off and sins greatly in his life. The older son is correct when he identifies that the younger son, the prodigal son, doesn't do the right thing. And just because God showed him grace doesn't mean it was the right thing in the first place. So no, we're not supposed to be like the prodigal son. He took off. Okay, the older brother. He was the rule follower. Certainly we're supposed to be like him. Wrong again. He couldn't even enter the party or talk about his brother as if it was his brother. He levied a accusation against the father's grace and compassion when he talks to the father figure in the story. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he says, you brought him back in. You would never give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And even though he took your assets and did all this stuff towards you, you're now letting him back in. How dare you? Because the older son knows better. He's self-righteous and he's better than everybody else. So are we supposed to be like the brother? Certainly not. He's too angry to even enter in to this grace and compassion and kindness that the father shows the son. Are we supposed to be the coin? No, of course, the coin doesn't do anything. It just gets lost. There's, there's nothing happening there. You're not supposed to be the coin. You're not supposed to get lost. Okay, are you supposed to be the sheep? No, it, it wandered away from its shepherd. It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to stay with its shepherd. That's where you're going to find safety. It's where you're going to find uh, all the material needs that you need in your life. No, you're not supposed to run away from the shepherd. So who are we supposed to be like if I'm supposed to just, if the whole story is for me to fit myself into one of these characters and become them? If that's what it's all about, and it's not about the seekers and the father, then what is this story even about? Well, you get the point. The whole stories, all three of these together in line, they build on one another, proving a point that the kingdom of God is like this. Jesus will go and find those who are lost and he will bring them in. He will save them. He will look for them and search for them. He will have compassion on them. And when they come in, he won't then, mm -mm -mm -mm, here are the rules. Here's what you must do. Instead, what he does is he throws a party. I love that. He throws a party and every one of the ending of the stories which it kind of is an open-ended ending, honestly, but as, as the stories wrap for each one of them, Jesus throws a party. I mean, imagine how many people it would take to eat a fattened calf. I mean, it's not like five people. You know what I'm saying? I know there's some Texans in, you know watching right now who think that they could eat anything, any amount of beef that you throw in front of them. Okay, I understand that. But I'm just saying, realistically, it takes a lot of people to eat a fattened calf. That's the kind of party that Jesus is talking about. The angels are going to celebrate over one lost sinner who repents than over 99 people who didn't need repentance in the first place because they already knew what they should be doing. So celebration or contempt, what characterizes the kingdom of God? Celebration over what God is doing, over how God is bringing the lost in. So I have some observations about this. 
God is challenging you to model his love. Because who are we supposed to be like? Now, we can't be the father. We can't necessarily be the seekers in these stories, but we can be like them and we can try to emulate what they do. Just as Jesus modeled God's compassion and love, we are to imitate Christ's example. We've talked about that in our Heaven and Earth series at length, how we're supposed to be Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 people. That's exactly who we are supposed to be. We are to imitate Christ's example. And in the story that we see, uh, the unquestioning father is demonstrating his love for his son. Notice that the father doesn't go into a rant about where were you, son? What were you doing? Instead, he just says, get the fatted calf. It's time to party. You know what I'm saying? I love it. He doesn't question the son or, or have these this list of things that he has to do in order to become right. Instead, he's just right because the father loves him. The prodigal doesn't just merely return home. He returns home to a loving father who welcomes him in, who receives him tenderly and restores him fully. He puts a coat on him, gives him his signet ring, signifying you are back in the family, even though you wanted out of it. Now you're in. This is what grace looks like. Not only does the father go to the son that left, he goes to the son who stayed and he pleads with him to join the celebration the father calls them both son, even when the older brother can't talk about his brother in loving terms. Even when the son is accusing the father of being foolish for allowing the son to return. Even when he's levying accusations against him for being compassionate and not being just or righteous or whatever. The father comes out with great affection and reassures his older son that you also have a place and a future in my home. You are always with me. You have everything that I have. Just as Jesus modeled love and compassion in first century Israel, we are also to be representatives of God in our present generation and to our own culture. It might look differently, but the principle is the same. We are to find the lost. We are to love, show compassion, and be gracious people. God is calling you to celebrate. Um, there's, I mean, pretty easy themes to find in the stories here. Seeking and joy. That's what this is all about. Seeking and joy. Joy is God's emotion over recovering the lost. What follows is God's expression of that joy through rejoicing. Let's party. Let's hang out. Let's have a good time together because a great thing has happened. Joy is an essential ingredient in the kingdom of heaven. Where the kingdom is there is joy because where the kingdom is, is where God is present. And where God is present, there is joy. Psalm chapter, uh, yeah, Psalm 16, actually. Psalm 16 talks about where there is the Lord's presence, there is joy. We have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, what is the temperature of our spiritual lives if we have no joy in it? Are we healthy or are we unhealthy? in our spiritual pursuit of Christ, because what Christ is calling us to is to joy and to honor the other person, to go out in compassion and love and grace and find the lost and bring them in and not just go, okay, great job, golf clap. Amen. Yes, they can be a part of the church. Great job. While they're in the front weeping and crying because they've just made a crazy, awesome life decision and they know they've been forgiven and we're in the pews going, Hey man, what time is it? Is it lunchtime yet? 
Okay, great. Yeah. There's such a contrast, and that's what Jesus is trying to expose, that we're supposed to celebrate the things that really matter. The things that really matter in life are that people are being transformed to become Christ's disciples. Listen, if the lost are being saved, the saved are being restored, and the restored are being transformed, the realization of those truths should cause our hearts to overflow with joy, not only for what God's doing in our own lives, but what God is going to do in the lives of others that we should hopefully have a hand in transforming as well. So if our hearts aren't overflowing with gratitude and joy at the thought of being forgiven, do you really believe you need forgiveness or are you the older brother? Some will say it's just a difference of personality and I'm a more stoic person and I'm reserved. And in, and in worship, I'm a statue. And I don't have to dance or don't think that it's important or don't have to sing loud or clap. I don't have to do any of those things, even though it's a command in scripture. I don't have to do any of those things because it's just a personality difference. And I'm, I'm not an exuberant person. Um, listen, that might be true. You might be a more reserved, stoic person. There's no problem with that. God wired you that way. However, the father threw a party. The woman who found the coin called all of her neighbors, said, rejoice with me. The shepherd said, friends, I found the one sheep that was lost. Can you believe it? And they're sitting over there going, there's 99 over here. What's wrong with you? And he's saying, let's throw a party. I'm not saying that you have to be this or that in a worship service or this or that when you hear about stories of God. But I, I, I know this, when I think about myself personally, when I'm a statue in worship, or when I'm a statue, when I see the things of God or read his, his word, I know where my heart is and it's not close to him. I'm not saying you have to, uh, you know, unclothe like David did and dance around the ark in, in worship service. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about, though, how we express our joy to the Lord in the presence of others says a lot about where we are. Because joy is not an optional feature for one who has faith in Christ. It's one of the fruits of the spirit. It's one of the things that should be flowing out of you as you become more like Jesus. Number three, God is challenging you to befriend sinners. Jesus told these stories to defend his lifestyle of accepting sinners and eating with them. It's pretty clear from the story that he's trying to tell the Pharisees, be quiet <laughs> in a nice way, be quiet. Because if Jesus um, eating with sinners demonstrates God's forgiveness and mercy in the kingdom, then likewise, the complaints against Jesus show really complaints against God and how he operates and how he thinks about the world. Such complaints are misguided and they're completely out of touch with what God is doing. The concerns that we listed earlier, well, what if I accept them or what if I do this or what if they you know, do this to me or what... All of those concerns Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with because he trusts fully in what God is doing in his life and the will that he has for the lost people that Jesus encounters. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of trust? Because what we're supposed to be displaying are the attitudes of Jesus. We're supposed to go out. Just changing that attitude even is a missional force in your life. That attitude shift from these people don't deserve it. These people are this or whatever, or that person is, is so far gone or whatever. Even that attitude shift begins to change the way that we pray for people. 
And it begins to change the way that we act towards people and the conversations that we might have with them. Not only will we accept sinners, we will go find them because, listen, we were once one. You just keep bringing it back. I keep using the label sinners because that's what the Bible says, but you got to understand that you and I were once sinners as well. And God went and got us through somebody, your Sunday school teacher, your mom, your dad, whoever, whoever shared the gospel with you, somebody, somebody went and got you and brought you in exactly what Jesus is saying we're supposed to be and supposed to do. And so we're supposed to do the same. And when we find them and when they come to know Jesus, we then make disciples out of them. So you may have noticed that there's no like nice tidy bow at the end of the story, just kind of hangs on the the brothers, you know, just he's angry about it. And, you know, your brother was lost and he's found. And the story ends. There's like no ending, which I think is on purpose. Jesus often leaves these stories open-ended to challenge the way that you're thinking, to challenge your attitudes, maybe to help you begin to think about who am I in the story? Now, don't overdo that, but but who am I? Who do I identify with in the story? Am I a prodigal? Am I the older brother? Am I uh, am I living like the like the father lived? Am I trying to emulate that example? Who am I? And am I doing what God has called me to do? I think that's done on purpose because God wants you to bring you further into what He's trying to say. And I think that God is inviting us to a couple of things today as we kind of wrap up here. We need to come to our senses just like the prodigal son did. God's grace will allow us to come to ourselves and see who we are and who we are meant to be because of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. The son comes to his senses and realizes, I don't have to eat pig slop. I can go back to my father and he'll at least make me a servant and it'll be way better than where I'm at now. Some of us need to come to our senses about where we are, whether we're in a relationship with Jesus already, but have kind of gone quiet with that or have gone, um, uh, I don't know, tame with that. We're no longer joyful or, or filled with the Spirit or partnering with the Spirit. Instead, it's just kind of what we do, just a religious observance rather than a relationship born out of love for Jesus. Some of us need to come to our senses about the fact that we have sin in our lives and we've never made a personal commitment to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. And we've never committed to him. Some of us need to come to our senses and realize that we have to make a decision to follow Jesus as Lord of our lives. Some of us need to return to God. Again, like the prodigal son did. He walked back to where his father was and he realized, I'm not going to be accepted in the same way that I used to be. But the father showed him such grace because we're not destined to be slaves or prodigals. We're destined to be children of the father. Grace allows you and it allows me to be who we are supposed to be in Christ because it makes space for us to be who we are. And when we make mistakes, when we sin, even after we're saved, God doesn't want you to do it again, but then with loving arms, hugs you, loves you, brings you in, gives you the signet ring, says you are my child. And that is our identity in Christ as we move forward. Some of us need to return to him. We need to repent of what we've been doing, even if we haven't been doing anything wrong per se, but we've just grown lackadaisical in our pursuit of Jesus lately. We've just, you know what I'm saying? We put on our quarantine 15 and we're really, you know, comfortable right now. And we haven't sought God with all the passion that we're supposed to. Maybe some of us need to return to him this morning. Many of us need to be willing to, to be embraced by God. This is what he calls us and this is what he wants for us. 
Because the reality is, again, that we were all sinners. And that what Jesus called us towards is repentance. And he wants us to then be transformed by um, the changing of our minds, the renewal of our minds, Paul will say in Romans chapter 12. We want to become the people that Jesus calls us to be, which are the people that Matthew chapters 5 through 7 really list and talk about. He wants us to be like the people who go and seek and save the lost the way that Jesus did for us. Listen, if your worship is not drenched in joy and saturated with rejoicing, then we need to repent of that as well. We need to find a way to renew that joy within us, whether it's reading our Bibles more or having some great conversations with people that we trust who are maybe our mentors to us in the faith, or maybe we need to read some more books about whatever it is. Maybe it's getting more diligent about serving the Lord, whatever it is. We need to refine some of the joy that we found before when we were first saved. Finally, I want to end with this. God seeks and saves the lost. He wants you in his family. If you're someone who's never placed their personal faith and trust in Jesus as Lord of your life, if you've never made that proclamation in your heart and believed it to be true that Jesus can save me from my sin and I commit to, to being one of his people now, to being one of his children as he's Lord of my life. If you've never made that decision, man, we, we I just invite you this morning to pray along with me here in a moment. The words aren't a special spell. You don't manipulate God into anything. What's really important is whether or not you believe it to be true in your heart and whether you can place your faith and trust in something you haven't seen. You might experience and feel it though, and that doesn't mean it's any less real. So this morning, if God is tugging on your heart, if he's making you feel a certain way about what we're talking about this morning, and I would ask you to text us. Uh, we, we'll, Jeremy will splash a number up on the screen. Text us and let us know um, if you want to know more about salvation or if you're going to pray with us today. Please let us know that you made that decision because we'd want to get a Bible in your hand. We'd want to communicate with you what the next steps are as far as being discipled and becoming more like Jesus each day. So here in a moment, I'm going to pray and you can just follow along with me as we close our services. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for loving me, for seeing me. And even when I was far away from you, even when I was one of those lost people who didn't know you, who wasn't righteous, who didn't have it all together, because I've sinned, I've gone against your commands, and I recognize that and know that. Thank you for coming to get me, though, and offer me grace to give me what I don't deserve, to not give me judgment, but instead to give me love and acceptance and being brought into your kingdom and into your family. Father, I, I'm asking you to forgive my sins. I'm asking you to change my heart. I'm asking you to change the way that I live and the way that I think to now reflect the truth that I believe. Jesus is Lord. I want to commit to make him Lord of my life every day and in every decision and in every thought and every way. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for changing me and help me to live for you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed something like that, would you please let us know? Uh, we love you guys so much. I miss seeing you all in person. The stuff is going up live here in a moment for the children's programs, and we'll catch you guys next week.